really hard to get outside. In some schools, it is like trying to escape from Alcatraz. And nobody ever tells you that. You know, that kid who's always messing about or who walks out of class half the time in frustration is in there showing other people what to do and getting the right answers. I'm rubbish at following worksheets or somebody else's project plan. I just can't do it. I start I halfway through and think, but I don't have that bit of kit or that's going to take me ages to do or why would I want to do that? I start arguing with the worksheet. That formula can be applied to working outside. So it's very simple. There's two questions. Can I do it? And is it worth it? Hello, and welcome to Earthy Chats, where we're cross-pollinating ideas in environmental education. We're here to share with you the best environmental education resources from across Canada and chat with their creators, digging in as to why they do this work, how they do it, and what you can do with it. I'm one of your hosts, Jade Harvey Beryl. I'm the Wild Voices Program Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM for short, a member of Canada's non-profit outdoor learning store team and owner of Stoked on Science, an education company and consultancy where I deliver and design environmental and science programs for K-8 adult across BC. And I'm another one of your hosts, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, a global network of environmental educators that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers. Let's get started. If you think about all the millions of hours that have gone into planning resources and lessons for a square box called a classroom, we haven't begun to turn the tap of potential on what the outdoors is all around. And when you think about the fact that for so long too, we've discarded the knowledge and the teachings of indigenous groups and marginalized groups who know so Welcome to this edition of Earthy Chats podcast, where we are cross-pollinating ideas in environmental education. Uh, our fantastic uh, guest today is Juliet Robertson. Juliet is one of Scotland's leading education consultants who specialises in outdoor learning and play. She works at the national level, delivering training, keynote, giving keynote speeches, leading and supporting innovative outdoor projects and writing content for websites, documents and case studies. Uh, she's passionate about enabling schools, play organisations and early years settings to provide quality outdoor learning and play opportunities for children and young people. And after years of ghostwriting and public blogging, uh, Juliet is now the author of Dirty Teaching, A Beginner's Guide to Outdoor Learning or Learning Outdoors, which was published in 2014, and Messy Maths, which was published in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Juliet. Thank you very much. It is so kind of you to invite me to have a chat with you. It's uh, it's our honour. Um, okay, so you live in Scotland, um, but you've travelled all over and seen the world, I believe. Um, in Dirty Teaching, as part of the setup, you ask teachers to consider their life in places, uh, which helps them to sort of guide their understanding of their, their teaching. So can you give us a little bit of your life in places? Um, sure. I spent my first five years growing up in Cumbria. In fact, my first 10. Um, so I had quite a rural upbringing. 
but I hated being outside unless it was raining um, because then at least there were puddles jumping. But I was always that child who would dilly-dally around. In fact, to the point when I was six years old, um, I was in a school and if you were the slowest person to drink your milk at snack, your punishment was to stay inside and wash out the milk bottles. Hallelujah. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> quite so a change. It's such a British like school type punishment, isn't it? I've I feel like I've had a very similar it's kindred spirits sort of thing there for sure. <laughs> That's um, it. But my, I, I so my next sorry, my next question was like, Oh, did you just always love nature and being outdoors? But you've just answered it there. Yeah, no, not particularly. I mean I was never I was, I didn't like mud particularly. Um outdoor experiences they were they were never something I, I even thought about you were told to go outside if it was break time um you stayed in if I possibly could and I didn't think anything more about it what what hit me was middle childhood and in 1976 I was hill walking first time I'd been up a really big hill and I was just blown away by the view. And I think I mentioned this in Dirty Teaching. I absolutely couldn't get over it. And I just spent the rest of that year with my eyes turned towards the hills and mapping out the contours and just thinking, I want to go back there. Um, so so in many ways, it, it wasn't so much my early experiences. It was my interest in, in physical movements and getting out and about. And then the environmental stuff hit. And that was my impetus because I had to go to study environmental science because I wanted to find out more about pollution and soil, you know, um, acid rain and desertification and stuff like that at uni. Yeah. I did a physical geography degree for exactly the same reason. I actually went, I went to the Grand Canyon. My dad took me to the Grand Canyon and I sat on top of it and I wanted to understand how this giant landform came to be, how these processes worked and where I fit into that, into that system. And, um, and I came to it late as well. I didn't like camping. I didn't like bugs. Um, and until I was about 18, actually. So I was very late to the party and then it, it, <laughs> you know something like you say something clicks and I think honestly looking at this book um and the way or both books but the way that you connect youth I think with some of these um the ideas we'll talk about that later but as you go into it these are the ways that you'll capture those kids early on these are the ways that you can turn their eyes to the hills earlier than perhaps we came to it naturally without without that instruction well, this is it, because we have to we have to remember that back in the the olden days, as I say, <laughs> in, nature walks died out because up until the 60s, that was the idea of, of what learning about nature was, was you went out and you studied it, you drew it, you learned its name, you learned its botanical name. And it was all actually a bit dull <laughs> for a lot of children, <laughs> you know, um, but in my 70s, I went to a school where you went from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon. We had two hours to play. And furthermore, we had a very old fashioned head teacher who kicked us down to the local park 
to play, not even the playground. We were out into the park where there was great big rock outcrops and there was space to run and be free. So although I wasn't interested in nature per se, I had an immersion in nature, which I do think has paid off without a doubt. Yeah, that space, it sort of absorbs you and then you end up spitting it back out um, to the next generations. You, you did train as a teacher, Right. Uh, yes, eventually. Um, I, I started out doing environmental science. Do you want to know the real dirt here? At this point, you might think this isn't appropriate for going out all over Canada. <laughs> but anyway, you go to university and you're doing a science degree and you have 27 hours of study. And you look at the art students who in my university had nine hours of study and of all, not all half of those even had an exam at the end. And I was going, this is wrong. So I literally asked everybody I knew, what's the easiest, uh, as we would say in Scotland, the dossiest course to do? What's the dossiest course to do in this university? <laughs> and apart from a physics course that I wasn't eligible to take, everyone said education. You get a B just for turning up. And I just went, that is my course. So I went along and I got my B for turning up, but I found it really interesting. So... At the time, I wasn't allowed to study secondary school science um, because I refused to do one module in biology. I, I chose education instead. And my environmental degree, wait for it, lacked the regional specialisation required to teach geography in Scotland at the time. Because we all know how important it is to understand the, the geography of South America um, to be able to teach teens, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. madness. Well, thank, thank goodness for place-based education, sort of, sort of reversing that trend. It's funny that you talk about um, like arts and stuff because Ian, you, well, you you're like for me, you are art and science like merging. Yeah, I'm a weird hybrid. The perfect thing. <laughs> um, he is. He's a strong hybrid, and he has the most beautiful field notebooks and drawings and things but I remember also yeah my flatmate at university was doing a drama degree and I was writing my dissertation like sort of aggressively and not really eating or drinking enough and just being a bit manic and and she was sort of on stage doing her thing and me being like ah and then I realized how much it all comes together when you actually particularly if you have to communicate your subject to someone with passion you know, t typing 25 pages of text doesn't engage people. So being able to connect with that creative part of your brain uh, is so important. And I, yeah, I took a lot from her actually by the end of the degree of, of how to communicate in a better, more engaging way as the science was knocking all the creativity out of me. Well, isn't that interesting? Because one of the reasons I think dirty teaching has done well is actually because of the creativity of the layout. Um, it's it's not the run-of-the-mill education type of book. Mm. And um, Crown House Publishing, my publishers, they have this, it, it's a, a little independent publisher. And everybody who works there often has a second job. So the guy who does all the layout and the, and the illustration sides of things, he actually works part-time. And his, his real interest is working in a band. He's got his own band and things. Awesome. So I, th I think that 
yeah, it's brilliant. And again, the, the copy editor I had called Emma, amazing. But she has another life as a botanical artist and she wants to write children's books. And she actually has self-published and they're lovely, you know, absolutely brilliant books. But I think it's that creativity that really does make a difference and how things are presented to people. If people haven't bought it yet, um, A, there's lots of pictures, there's lots of pictures, um, and then um, the book is broken down into little ideas that are, you know, a paragraph often bullet pointed. And you could, yeah, you could take a picture of that on your phone and take it out so you didn't have to carry yes. the whole book. You could photocopy it, or you could even probably sort of write it down verbatim um, in a few minutes and take it out. And we'll talk a bit more about yeah lesson plans and the way that these books interact with teachers as we as we go forth hey there folks this is ian one half of the earthy chats host team i'm just here to let you know about the talking with green teachers podcast produced by green teacher if you don't know who green teacher is we are a non-profit network of environmental educators all around the world. You can join this network for only $32 a year. That includes a subscription to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. Ian, dive in, dive in more to to, to book writing because I, you know, you're an editor. You know, you know what goes into this sort of stuff. For sure, and you know, I'm always interested in talking to authors about just how the process of writing a book came about, or the impetus for writing a book came about. I mean, was it just I have all these ideas and people keep asking me about them? I need to get them all in one place. Is it? an editor coming to you, maybe it's a hybrid of both. So sort of what is your story in getting these two books published? Well, again, there's always a saga. <laughs> the story right. is just a, a little bit longer and more elongated. So when I stopped being a head teacher, that's a school principal, um, I didn't intend to become an outdoor learning consultant, not at all. No, my plan was I, I actually had a place on a law degree because I wanted to do something that was really dull so that when I came home at night, I could properly switch off. Don't mean you would leave your work at work. Yeah. Only it all yeah. went horribly, horribly wrong because I went back to supply teaching to earn money so that I could do my law degree. So I was supply teaching like crazy. That's substitute teaching in, in Canada, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, or being a TTOT, a teacher on call. That's it. And I just found I was thoroughly enjoying the the madness of being a supply teacher because it <laughs> is, you know, you go in and, you know, of course, you always go into the schools that find it hardest to get su supply teachers. So they're always the classes, you know, you get phoned up and say, hi, can you teach grade two? And you come in and they go, ah, oh, did we say grade two? We've had a little bit of a change around. Would you mind taking grade six? No, no problem. That's brilliant. <laughs> you can hear this relief. Oh, by the way, they haven't yeah. had a regular teacher for the past year. So they're a little unsettled. And you know exactly <laughs> what that means. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, and you know, I remember in one class, one 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 child looked me up and down, and and said to me, "How can you be so strict and so kind?" 
as if she didn't get it. And then in another class, I had another child that, that looked at me at 11 o'clock and said, Miss, you're still here. What's going on? We normally get rid of supply teachers by now. And I smiled and I said, I know, I'm sure I appreciate you trying very hard. I said, but what you have to understand is um, the unfortunate truth is I'm paid to be here and you're not. Um, so I will stick it out. <laughs> you know, I'm, and, I... <laughs> you know, which is, is it's it's a bit brutal, but you know it is true. You know, I will stay. <laughs> I think sometimes those truths come in. I've even just as an outside educator, or I'm coming in to teach something on water science or whatever for a couple of days, and I've got some of the older, yeah, kids, middle school or even high school, and and um, I'm just like, look, yeah, I'm getting, I'm being paid to be here, so you can either listen to me and we can do this fun lesson, or I'll just get you to copy out of a book dealer's choice and they sort of like oh no she's she's gonna make a decision and we're gonna have to do things but yes i i very much appreciate your energy and forthcoming so you um became a supply teacher and not a lawyer and then yeah and while i was doing that several things happened because once when you're a school principal the only time you really have is one to be a school principal and to to see to your family you know because I had a young child and a husband and things like that so th there was no time really for anything else so when I stopped being a, a school principal I promised myself I would do everything I didn't have time to do so I wanted to go traveling and I also um, wanted to do more outdoor stuff and that's how I ended up sort of saying I think I should be doing more of this as a substitute teacher, what if I go outside with this crazy class? Mm. And to my surprise, because you always think, I don't want to take a, a, a class full of children with be with, who are giving me a lot of behavior challenges outside because they'll all run away. They won't do as I ask and I can't contain them. Yeah. My experience is that it doesn't happen. You would think it, it does, but there's just certain tricks you pick up so for example if your class starts going AWOL now it doesn't work with grade five children I do appreciate this but with certainly up to grade two two and even sometimes grade three you just look at them and go where are you going you're not meant to be over there you're meant to be over here and you start running and then once you get two children you look at them and go what are you doing over here no we're meant to be over there and you just run going here there and everywhere and eventually the children join in because it's so mad and loopy and fun and then you go what are you doing over here you should be here and you point to your feet and they're all in a group That's and you're brilliant. ready to go and they've all run around so they're all tired and they just need a break <laughs> and then off you go <laughs> so so i would learn tricks like that another crazy trick um which i'm very grateful to the um Again, it was um, grade five class who showed me this. I turned up at the school thinking I was going to teach grade two, and no, it was grade six again. Um, and I had a suitcase with me. I had two suitcases. So they looked at these suitcases in this class and said, Miss, what have you got in there? And I said, well, I thought I was teaching grade two, and I've got all this outdoor kit. They said, what do you mean outdoor kit? I said, well, I've got like jackets, and I've got pants, and I've got waterproof stuff people to wear outside so that we could go outside really and I said yeah and I said you know sadly you know you're too big for it can we have a look anyway so 
it, it got to this situation where the class opened up the suitcase so fascinated that they wanted to try it on and then they wanted to go outside and do stuff even though it was all sort of up to their elbows and up to their knees and we just went outside this odd ball class and we had a ball just doing you know basic things like a bit of a scavenger hunt and things like that I mean nothing great shakes but it just it was just one of those spontaneous things that just worked and so that's what dirty teaching is actually about. It was about all those issues in the first five years of doing supply work like this, going in and usually falling flat on my face in some way and usually feeling rather inadequate and saying, well, how do I learn from this? How do I get over this? You know, and, and just little things nobody ever tells you. It's really hard to get outside. In some schools, it is like trying to escape from Alcatraz, and nobody ever tells you that. You know that the, you know that that emergency exit won't open, or you're not allowed to because it'll set off the alarm. So you've got to go through three corridors up two flights of stairs. Then you've got to get a pass. Then you've got to get out. That's why teachers aren't taking their kids outside because that's really difficult to plan for that if you're not used to it. Once you know it, you can start being clever. But it's almost like um people have to there has to be that reality check and and very often it is great being outside but it's it's i wouldn't say it's any easier or any more difficult it's just there's different things that you encounter and to have had that experience of listening or reading about somebody who's really been there and and knows what it's like you know and yeah i've been challenged what are they learning outside you know how do you know you are doing your job well um it's raining outside, it's not acceptable that you are outside in this weather. All these sorts of questions I had to deal with in those years, which is, is you know, quite something, really. So in a way, dirty teaching is kind of like an escape guide to Alcatraz. <laughs> it's breaking these systemic <laughs> barriers. And, you know, we talk a lot in various contexts about systemic inequities, and it's almost like outdoor learning is discriminated against systemically in terms of our education system yet you have found yes. this way to break beyond that yes well I, I tell you the other thing so you know as, as I say everything's always a saga and back <laughs> in 2008 I'd, I'd already decided early on when I realized that I really wanted to do more around outdoors that this was nothing to do with with outdoors versus indoors it's all about quality learning what is the quality experience for children in in their day whether it's outside or in we want it to be the best education possible all i'm interested in though is being the advocate for the outdoors so i talk the language of learning and teaching principally that's my background i'm an educator the, the second thing there because of that it's about change we're, we're dealing with change management here so how do you create systemic change and that's where I went and sort of did all the search on what works in terms of that. And I came across a, a brilliant book called The Influencers, which is dated now, but it had this little framework and they had looked at impossible cases. So they had examined how um, the spread of, um, well, oh gosh, this sounds so inappropriate, but how did the Thai sex industry stop the spread of HIV in the 80s? Yeah. And there's, there was a drug addict center in California. I can't remember where, but
but to qualify for this drug addiction program, you had to have been inside prison three times and you had to be a hardened crack addict. And they had a 95% success rate of people going through their program, never ever reoffending. So I was reading these sorts of scenarios going, all I want is for children to be able to teach and children and teachers to be able to work outside. I'm sorry, that formula can be applied to working outside. So it's very simple. Um, there's two questions. Can I do it? And is it worth it? Those are the only questions you need to ask yourself. And if you can say to yourself, can I do it? At a personal level, you've got to be able to answer yes. Is it worth it? Yes, personally, it's worth it for me. You know, whether as a professional teacher, for self-motivation, for the greater good of the children. Then you've got that at a social level within your school. So, for example, one year I was working with a lovely teacher, newly qualified. Um, she'd been very hesitant about using the local botanic garden. It was only a five minute walk away, but we'd got to a point where she was about to go out. And I turned up, it was pouring with rain. And in the 10 minutes before we were due for that lesson to start, three different members of staff walked into her room saying, you're not going out today, are you? And you're thinking, this is why this teacher has reservations about going outside because the social context in which she's working is, is preventing her from exactly. following what actually she'd like to do. And then you've got your structural level. So that's, do they have the clothing? Do they have, do you have the systems like the Alcatraz thing? Do the doors, is there an easy access route to the outdoors? Um, what about the kit that you need? Is it grab and go? Or is it all stuck in a shed at the other end of the playground? And it's going a bit mouldy and nobody ever looks after it because if so, nobody's going to use that kit. You know, it needs to be grab and go in the classrooms where you are. You know, so it's all these little things that pile up. But if you can answer at personal, social and structural level, can I do it and is it worth it? You will get outside and everybody in your school will. And it can be any subject. It's not just the traditional ones like science and phys ed. It's right across the board. Absolutely. I mean, to, I mean that's why I, I started with a maths book. It's early years because I work from the bottom up rather than trying to squidge the, the early years in as an afterthought. I mean, back in 2010, I was asked for Education Scotland, which is our one of our key bodies within Scotland that support education, to look at our curriculum and to say what stuff should best be done outside what stuff it should best be done inside within the curriculum and where is it just around um, teacher choice and confidence. And this was 2010, really just before iPads had started. And funnily enough, the only things that you could really, you really had to do inside were some chemical laboratory experiments. Sometimes you need lab conditions, particularly in chemistry. Sure. You know, not so much in physics, but usually chemistry, you need tight conditions, you know, because you're dealing with chemicals and certain amounts and you can't have contamination. Everything else is pretty much a choice. Certain things, handwriting, you know, it's probably better if you're at a desk. <laughs> and you but you could have an outdoor desk. You could. You'd want it warm and you'd want it to be a place where you could concentrate, that sort of thing. So... You know, that to me is probably something where I do, I do a lot of writing outside. But for final copies, if it was handwriting, I mean, it's different now because, again, of course, a lot more is digital. But um, 
you can write the poem outside right and then if you want to produce a final piece of artwork that's you know a little tidier then take it inside but if you're writing a poem about trees writing it underneath the tree has got to connect you more to your subject well it definitely does and i mean this is the the evidence that's coming out you know is that particularly over literacy and language being in situ is the inspiration and you can do very simple tests like if if you have a a grade teaching partner so there's two of you that teach at grade four then one of you can do something inside the other can do it out and you can compare and a very simple one is to say right you've got 10 minutes to write down all the different descriptions you can think of for relief go on off you go and you can do the same activity outside where they can pick up a leaf, feel it, sl- smell it, show it, look at it and things like that. And of course, you're going to get a much richer set of adjectives and probably a lot more from the class that was outside. Of you know, course. So you can do very basic comparator stuff like that, which, which, which you know, just sort of is, is a bit of a slam dunk. And again, when you look at... Um, writers and poets and 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 people most of them do not gain inspiration sitting at a desk inside with 29 other people sitting around them you know they you know they have a book with them they journal you know journaling is absolutely massive and you can do it digitally you know you can annotate photos these days i mean this is the beauty of, of, of actually iPads and digital technology now is it's all so portable and it's all so funky and cool that you can really start to do very, very clever things between being outside and being digital. Absolutely. I love that you draw that because we do live in a technological world and we can't ostracise children from the way the world is moving. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network or CBEAM. You can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. One of the things I love that one of the chapters is devoted to time um, in your book. And then there's pattern, there's there's all sorts of things. But, you know, for me, when I meet students now, younger students, they are not learning how to tell the time in an analogue fashion. Um, And even just connecting with, um, you know, utilising the sun or whatever, or these little um, very simple ideas that, are quite loose it's not like an hour-long lesson plan this book is not these pages and pages of you know photocopy this and then get the kids to follow it um how do you feel that that connects students 
to the world around them in a in a in a better way is is it linked to play again um i think it's more linked to so with time a lot of what interested me there was that every culture across the world seems to have different senses of time so although in a mathematical sense it's very tight you know you have one o'clock two o'clock three o'clock when you really start to think about it you know how come you know you're doing some things and it takes so long that half an hour takes forever to pass <laughs> and then another time it passes in an instant so straight away we've got very interesting things going on around perception of time and when you look at it from an environmental point of view time was one of the things that as humans all cultures did start to attend to so how come all cultures were interested in stars and astronomy and started using that as a way of working out time how come you know that um if you think about a song a song is a non-standard unit of time because when you sing a song whether it's humpty dumpty or how much is that doggy in the window or anything else it takes roughly the same amount of time doesn't it and that's where if you were an Aboriginal person in Australia, that is pure genius for mapping your way across the country, isn't it? You've got a song that gives you the amount of time it's likely to take that incorporates key features of the landscape. So, you know, I, I think it's just one of those things that absolutely fascinates me. And um, at some point I will write an elementary book to build upon messy math. And the time bit should be a, a lot of fun, I'm hoping. <laughs> Judging by the the energy and smiles, I have no doubt. Um, but even in that little brief thing, we talked about time and then there was music, there was geography, there was language. Uh, and I think this is one thing I'd like to point out, that, that Messy Maths is so much more than just a book to teach about maths outdoors it's so cross-curricular it's so encompassing um and it's really just a phenomenal resource that i am using uh, myself uh, oh. when i go in um uh with with students i've litlands and we do like a nature through the seasons thing and this is very very helpful for me uh, in planning some uh, activities there so oh <laughs> so, little fan fan moment oh. um what's what's the future then what are you what are you working on what's where's the passion at the moment what's Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, no pressure or anything i need another book juliet i'm looking for another book i am desperate to write another three books um so that will be from mid 22 onwards that's going to be my focus just writing three more books but dum ba dum ba dum because i'm saving up all this material and I've got it stored like a squirrel in different places and it's a cachet <laughs> and it's so exciting um, and I, 2021 I was ill I, I had um, acute myeloid leukemia which meant that I was in hospital for five months which was um, a bit of a nuisance in terms of outdoor stuff especially in Covid, you know, yeah, so put it mildly. Yes, <laughs> rather a nuisance. I like that. And... Yes. Yeah. So, um, 
I've now got to sort of play catch up. But the good thing is, is that you have plenty of time to reflect when you're on a hospital ward, you know, and you're getting pumped full of chemicals in one arm and you're, you're sort of humming and whoring about life in general. So, so I do have um, books. I want to do an early years literacy book. Um, I want to do an early years book on creativity. Now, there is a lot done about creativity outside, but I actually do want to sort of join together what does music, dance and art look like outside? And um, just in in really fun ways. And then the other one is an elementary maths book, because just before I got leukemia, I was actually getting, I, I've had two things on the go. I had a, an outdoor numeracy project on the go in Dundee City. And the educators were phenomenal. Some of them, oh my goodness me. And this is what I've always said. You know, I'm actually not a particularly brilliant teacher. What I do do is I have sparks of ideas and I'm very interested in learning and teaching. And I'm prepared to test things out and fall flat on my face and learn from them. So my speciality is actually making loads of mistakes and learning from them and applying what I've learned so that other people make less mistakes in theory. Um, <laughs> You know, I'd so love to tell you I'm brilliant. I'm really not. <laughs> but anyway, so I had I had this great maths project going, and in there we got lots of things sorted. But also, there's this big thing about challenge in grade six. You've got to challenge your your top end and things like that. I'm totally with people. So I said, right, I am going to make sure that all my stuff is super mega challenging for your top end, grade six, going into middle school and beyond. So that's the whole idea. So I got tuition from this guy called Isaac, this 24-year-old young man. He hadn't been outside, never taught outside, but he had gone to Cambridge to do pure maths. Then he had trained as a secondary teacher, found it really wasn't for him because his way of thinking about maths was very different to secondary. And we just once a week would sit down and brainstorm crazy things with math. So if you think about things like odd and even numbers, normally by grade one, you, children are expected to know the difference between an odd and an even number. Bump. That's as far as you take it. Bump. That's it. That's all you need to know. Thanks. Uh-uh. Because there's guaranteed <laughs> that at grade four, you will have at least 20% of the class who will never remember what an odd and even number is from grade one. And they sort of look at you when you're doing your, your multiplication stuff and you're talking about odd numbers and even numbers and you could be talking another language. So we would brainstorm, how do you take that concept of odd and even, which is actually about patterning all the way up, you know, so we would just do really cool things around jumping in and out of a circle and things like that to explain concepts around odd and even numbers but to revise it for those who maybe didn't remember but to extend it for those who are super mega bright you know because you should teach and children will learn from each other and that's the other thing about being outside is that it's a leveler in other words suddenly the oh, children yeah. who are good inside sitting at a desk writing are finding that they're having to look around because you know that kid who's always messing about or who walks out of class half the time in frustration is in there showing other people what to do and getting the right answers. And you, and it's it's such a great game changer that that it challenges and previously held assumptions about both children, their behaviour and their academic ability. 
you know so it's more inclusive much more inclusive and you see that frustration level just dissipate out because that quiet still place does not work for all brains and yeah being able to be a bit louder where sound doesn't bounce off of hard walls and come back at you is is a huge huge benefit for me when I've seen yeah the other things that sometimes people worry about so if you do have a a a class that you find challenging outside um one of the things that I've always said is a a good way in is to do simple problem solvers and and North America has full of sort of camp games and rules and problem (laughs) solvers and things so all of those sort of very simple things just to get children acclimatized to one you're giving them instructions outside because what we have to remember from most children's perspective is that where they have recess is their territory not yours so you kind of have to help them understand that in class time it's a classroom and in recess time it's a recess room you know or space whatever you want to think and I even had a 10 year old want to ask me because we were going off site um, because I had a project called going out with Leo which was all about going outside and looking at Leonardo da Vinci and all his ideas and things so that was dead exciting but this kid called Sonny he looked me up and down and said miss if we're going out of school does that mean that you can't tell us what to do anymore (laughs) <laughs> they'll always push there's always that push against it oh, best and question. what did you say I said that was a very good question I just said that is an absolute brilliant question I'm so glad somebody asked it and I said unfortunately for you um, the law is that um, teachers are in what's known as loco parentis which means we are responsible for you like a parent is um, when so between the times that school exists so if you are outside with me during school time even if we're offside even if we're in Russia or somewhere completely different I said I'm still responsible for you and yes I'm still in charge but it's an honest conversation <laughs> exactly it's not you're not I, I really enjoy this you ask a question oh, I yeah. give you an honest answer rather than the why because I said so I mm-hmm. do think there's a shift from that mindset yeah, and I think I th- I think there is in society too. You know, I mean, you know, Scotland's got some lovely forward-thinking ideas, but meanwhile, we're about the only element in society where adults are still addressed as Mister, Mrs, and Ms. Whereas, you know, even with your doctor, you go in and it's Hi, I'm David, or Hello, I'm Kirsty. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So why is I... it we're still going Mrs. Robertson? You know, it's a, a bit better in some, might be Mrs. R, but even so, it's a very strange thing, the power base in education. Yeah, it's on its way out. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational and fun programmes across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organisation looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programmes that go beyond the basic science topics like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programmes for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. Both books move outside of the box and 
sort of throw the box away and don't even think about what a box should be um, in a way that is not challenging to access. So I would urge anyone who's not or not read them to, to go and see, have a peek uh, and see how such simple little things can take you on this beautiful learning journey. Oh, well, that's very kind. I, th- I think the thing to be aware of, which you've brought up already, is that I'm not offering worksheets. I'm just offering ideas and suggestions. And um, and for me, that goes very well. I was like, why is this book going down so well in Canada? Which it is. I mean, it's it's the best seller out with the UK. Canada's the country. And, um, and I think it's because, first of all, I, I do think this sounds so wrong, but but the standard of teacher training is very good in Canada, as a general rule. It, other countries in the world respect the Canadian teaching training that happens, but also there's an emphasis on inquiry-based learning, and essentially that's how my questions and in and things have been framed as um, investigations or challenges or problems to be solved and things like that. So they they don't lend themselves to worksheets, but what they do lend themselves to is um, collaborative work where everybody can work in the class together on that problem or that issue or that investigation. And that it enables the teacher to, in a sense, um, bring creativity back into their own teaching because I don't know about you Jade but I'm rubbish at following worksheets or somebody (laughs) else's project plan I just can't do it I start halfway through and think but I don't have that bit of kit or that's going to take me ages to do or why would I want to do that I start arguing with the worksheet and I'm not even the pupil so so set fire to it in the corner crying Uh, yeah so I, so so that that's never worked with me as a teacher. Whereas sparks of ideas which make you go ooh and ah, and very often, and I am seeing this again and again and again. There's an idea in the books or on my website. Somebody takes the idea and they do it ten times better than I could have imagined it because they're really professional teachers who know their stuff, you know. And and the other thing I would say is that in the book. It's not split into subjects because what I found was that if you split things into subjects, what happens is people go, oh, let's go for an idea in English. Mm-hmm. And do you know something? There's never the idea you need. I know it sounds really <laughs> stupid, but, you know, how can you possibly get down every idea for teaching verbs, adverbs, all your other different sorts of spelling, punctuation, grammar, aspects of creative writing? You're never going to cover it in a chapter. You just can't. That's why it needs to be a book. <laughs> but um, in its own right. So the idea of dirty teaching was that it would be a generic springboard from which the subject specialisms would, would eventually come. Now, whether I'll ever get round to that, I don't know. But I think I think there's there's so many people doing so many great stuff out there now. It's a very different place, education, in terms of outdoor learning than it was 10 years ago without a shadow of a doubt so 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 that's really good um, but my website does have sections on maths and literacy and things so you can find examples of what i've done and there's a lot of great momentum happening with this 
being mindful of time, we're actually spread across eight different time zones here. You're in GMT zero. I'm minus five and Jade is minus eight. So it's morning, midday and evening all at the same time. It's time travel. It's time travel. The brilliance of living on a round planet. But uh, for those who maybe need a small nudge, do you have a call to action or a challenge for anyone listening who wants to do this, but maybe doesn't know where to start? I mean, I, th- I think what you have to do is is you find a book or a resource, and it may not be dirty teaching. Let's be honest; everybody's brain thinks in a different way. But find a book or a resource that resonates with you, and then you commit to going outside once a week, even if it's just for ten minutes. But commit; you've got to make yourself go out every week. Now, of course, if you're living in a part of the country where the weather is unpredictable it may mean you have to change your timing around a little bit you know if the weather's truly awful and you really don't have the equipment to manage being outside in horrendous weather so um there's a bit of flexibility there but do that and do it with your children so that they actually make a graph or some form of um, information handling about how much time you're spending outside because then they will push you as a teacher you know, miss, hold you accountable. we've only been out, we haven't been outside this week. You know, Miss, you said you were, you were going to take us outside every week, <laughs> that sort of thing. So mm. it's really good. And then they can start clocking up the minutes and things like that. Basic, like if it's hammering rain, I have a tarp with some really cheap rope and we spend the, the, the lesson is setting up the tarp for us to sit under for a few minutes yeah you know if you if you've got trees or goalposts or you can weight it down with rocks anything like there's there's opportunities to be there the other thing is they would say you know it's always oh, it's raining it's like are you made of sugar will you dissolve in the rain shall we test the theory the hypothesis and they oh, i don't think so it's like there you go then yeah off we go yeah. that's it <laughs> luckily luckily we don't melt <laughs> sometimes i do a little action like the rain hits me and i'm melting like a witch and then they all copy and um other people look at us like we're very strange but we're having the best time ever that's it and i mean if you've got older children one of the things i suggest in dirty teaching is you you do a technology challenge you have two black bin liners and some duct tape or masking tape and your challenge is to work out how to create an outdoor suit that will last the longest outside. It's glorious. <laughs> it's just, it, the, you know, the you fun the that tape. will ensue from that. And engineering. Kids That's it. engineering yeah. solutions to their own problems. That's it's it. just... And, and the other thing is fun stuff like that. Then you can get into stuff around kites and things. Because if you get holes in black bin liners, you, you can actually use a kite flying technique to stick over other bits of plastic to seal it down and then to cut it into groovy um, light patterns and things so if you've got sort of like bat wings you can have them with beautiful lights and things like that where the light shines through and bits oh like that goodness. and you could do a so show me- with with lights in on in october with bat oh. yeah so there's just some beautiful things that you can do there's you know if, if you think about all the millions of hours that have gone into planning resources and lessons for a square box called a classroom we haven't begun to turn the tap of potential on what the outdoors is all around and when you think about the fact that 
for so long too, we've discarded the knowledge and the teachings of indigenous groups and marginalized groups who know so much as well, but we've so much to learn from and stuff like that. I mean, the learning potential is massive outside. We've just begun. And in um, Dirty Teaching, you talk about the golden principles of teaching outdoors. And part of that is like a checklist for teachers is setting up your own, um, looking at your own backyard and what are the you know rights to land. Or, and I think in Canada, I mean, there you're talking about, you know, here we have crown land, but also, yeah, that indigenous piece uh, can tie into that without, you know, this is sort of a global book, but it's really specific place-based again to where you are. So I think that's a beautiful thing uh, to finish with there. And something that I know Ian and I are both working on uh, whenever we work Excellent. with or connected to the land. It's so important. Always. Can I just say about that? Can I just interrupt? Yes. There's two things that are so cool about living in Scotland that way. So first of all, <laughs> nobody's sure where it came from, but they think it might have been a teacher that wanted to inspire children. But the, the Gaelic language in Scotland, which is to the, the north, the highlands and the islands, every letter of the alphabet has an association with a native tree or shrub. So you can really? learn your alphabet through all the different shrubs and, and trees that exist. Yes, there's 18 letters and there's 18 native species represented. So really good for code work and things. And then the other thing is that even if you don't know Gaelic very well, there are so many place names in Scotland that are still Gaelic and that still have. So a word like out is stream. So whenever you see out on a map, you know, it's a stream. So you can start learning Gaelic from all the places around, you know, and that do means is it. Is it do that means black? I can't remember now, but there's certain things like that. Mono is middle and things. So you can start learning Gaelic from the places around you and you can start place naming in Gaelic on the basis of just knowing one or two words, which That's is incredible. Beautiful. Of course. Yeah. And how I you learn language that. really by imprinting, by absorbing rather than learning, you know, word stru uh, sentence structures with parts of the language it's just to dive right in yeah I, I feel like we could just dive and swim together for hours here but we are um I think we should come to a close I've got so much to think about uh, and to dream about mainly uh the release of new books in the future I shall look forward with bated uh -huh. breath um, so Juliet, thank you so much for joining us for this earthy chat. It's been an absolute winner. And uh, you can find Messy Maths and Dirty Teaching uh, at the Outdoor Learning Store. And I think we'll find a link uh, to your website and we'll pop that uh, in the podcast description as well. So people can come and find you and uh, get some more pearls of wisdom. Brilliant. And just thank you so much for giving me this time. And I would also say to any anyone listening to this that of course, I can be contacted. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I take emails. I always try and respond to people. So if there is a particular query, you know, I'm always happy to try and clarify something. You know, so yeah. Great. It's extremely generous. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www 
outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars and cbean, that's c-b-e-e-n.org for a range of environmental resources, including professional development opportunities, grant information and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stokedonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. There's a Muslim saying that it takes three cups of tea to get to know somebody else. So we need another two cups. I love that. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. I'll take you yeah. up on that. Because it, it is, it's always good to chat. And I always feel bad in these sorts of interviews because I never get to, enough, to know enough about the other people who are asking the questions. You know.